Bingo time! Now it's time for the Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle Tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. The Voices of Liberty are here to entertain us with the great songs of America and words of wisdom from some of our presidents. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, it's time for us to elect another president in the United States, and so that means it's time for me to talk about the connection between the presidents of the United States and Walt Disney. You can check out several podcasts I've done on this topic, specific to Walt's profound interest in our nation's history and through the Hall of Presidents. I'll put some links to it in my show notes page, so you can check them out at your leisure. Today I'm going to talk about how the theme parks he created are loved by pretty much everyone, including sitting presidents. 
Yes, I'm going to talk about presidential visits to Disney theme parks. There's a funny quote from Bobby Kennedy as he was planning for a, a run for himself for the presidency. He looked at the people in the room and said, if anyone cares more about Disneyland than the presidency, he can get out. Thankfully, he was more of a minority opinion. And to be honest, he loved Disney too. There are pictures of him at Disneyland just like every other president and presidential brother and other people. So no surprise that he actually loved Disney as well. The story goes that every president since Harry Truman, with one exception, and remember that Truman was the president when Disneyland opened, each of them has visited one of the theme parks either for fun or in some official capacity before, during, or after their presidencies. And that extends to nearly all of the presidential hopefuls as well. Presidents, and wannabe presidents, love Disney parks. So let's take a look at each of the presidents since 1955 and talk about their personal connection to Disney. Harry S. Truman was in the White House when Disneyland opened, and naturally, he was the first president to visit. He took a trip to Disneyland in 1957. His was sort of an informal visit. In her book, Harry Truman, Margaret Truman once said, In the mid-1950s, when they visited California, Mother announced she wanted to visit Disneyland. The ex-president issued a 15-minute statement criticizing this idea. Disneyland was for children. No one was going to catch him riding roller coasters, etc., etc. Mother remained perfectly calm. She asked Charlie Murphy, who was accompanying them, if he would take her. Charlie, being the perfect Southern gentleman, said, Of course, yes. The next morning, he presented himself at their hotel, ready to do his duty. There was Dad, dressed to the nines, obviously ready to go somewhere. What are you planning for the day, Mr. President? Charlie asked. What do you think I'm planning? snapped Dad. I'm going to Disneyland. He went, and he enjoyed himself thoroughly. He rode a number of the park's attractions that day, but there's a story that might be apocryphal. He declined to ride on the Dumbo the Flying Elephant attraction. The story goes that he didn't want to be photographed with the symbol of the Republican Party, an elephant, being a Democrat himself. Now that's a nice tidy package, but who knows what the real reason was. We naturally don't know, but maybe he was just simply afraid of heights? Who knows?
The next president was Dwight D. Eisenhower. He visited Disneyland in 1961. His visit was also decidedly unofficial. Former President Eisenhower has a day out with his grandchildren, and it's a day of fun and relaxation. From David, 14, to Mary Jean, 6, the four grandchildren are out to see that Grandpa doesn't have one dull moment. It's a three-alarm good time as Mr. Eisenhower and the brood swarm over an old-time fire engine. Asked if he was having fun, the general replied, Oh, I love it. The family took in everything, from the monorail to the horseless carriage. This is part of the Eisenhower's Christmas holiday. The president and his wife have a cottage near Palm Desert, and it was there that they held a family reunion. A delightful day out that gives everybody a thrill. It was a vacation with his children and grandchildren. He rode the train, and both he and his wife, Mamie, were made honorary members of the Disneyland Fire Department that day. President Eisenhower was an admirer of Walt Disney and once described him as someone who has spread more understanding of the fun-loving American than anyone else and has brought joy to the hearts of many people, both young and old. He also saluted Walt for his contribution to the pleasure and understanding of the world community, and your genius as a creator of folklore has long been recognized by leaders in every field of human endeavor, including that most discerning body of critics, the children of this land and all lands. As an artist, your work has helped reveal our country to the world, and the world to all of us. As a man, your sympathetic attitude towards life has helped our children develop a clean and cheerful view of humanity with all its frailties and possibilities for good.
The next president of the United States was John F. Kennedy. Now, unfortunately, for with his life being cut short, he never made it to the happiest place on earth as president. However, in October of 1959, he visited as a senator from Massachusetts, and while there, he met President Siku Torre of Guinea. According to John Howard Morrow, the ambassador to Guinea, the story goes something like this. The question of why Disneyland was chosen as the site of this meeting has often been raised because one would think that because it's such a public place, the visit would be noticed. But it turned out to be the other way around. Because of its very location and the nature of it, very little was ever known about the visit. In fact, no publicity was given to it. Some pictures were taken, but they were taken by, I think, the photographers of the U.S. Information Service. So why it was changed, there was never any real explanation, but it was very odd to think of going to Disneyland. That's the first time I ever had an opportunity to visit there, and incidentally, to ride on that little train that goes around the lot and so on. The Guineas enjoyed it. But the significant thing was, why did Kennedy take the time to come all the way out to the coast to visit with President Tory? Did he know something no one else knew? Or was he sure of winning the election? We don't know. But it's a very unique incident to have a U.S. senator. Of course, it was true that he was chairman of the Subcommittee on African Affairs, and that gave a reason, actually, for visiting. But after all, Torrey had come to Washington, and as I recall, Kennedy was not at the state dinner. I'm trying to remember in what building the Disneyland meeting took place. You walked in this place, which had been reserved for the meeting. There's a picture in the book that will show you the group emerging, and if you take a look, you see that Kennedy can be seen along with Torrey. You'll also notice that there's an airline hostess in the group, and quite a few people following but they were members of his entourage. Just a few onlookers, visitors at Disneyland, but they were by and large unaware. So I decided for this reason that if he, Kennedy, were to come up with an entourage and a crowd to the Ambassador Hotel, everyone would have some knowledge of this thing, whereas by being in Disneyland, sort of unusual, people were taken by surprise. Kind of a funny story, isn't it? Now, as I mentioned before, his brother Bobby had visited Disneyland several times, as did his brother Ted. It really was a family thing among the Kennedys. Of course, there's another piece to history here. Disneyland did close the day after the assassination at Walt's request. Saturday, November 23, 1963, was a national day of mourning in honor of the president. It's one of the few times that the park has actually been closed. There's also a footnote that's worth mentioning here that's not particularly related to the president's, but... In 1960, as the Cold War was simmering, now, can you say that the Cold War would be simmering? That, that doesn't sound quite right. Maybe it was freezing? I'm not sure. The Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev, was on a tour of U.S. cities, and he asked to visit Disneyland. He wanted to see the Great American Park, and who knows, a visit may have inspired some form of glasnost or publicity or openness. But as you may have guessed, he was prohibited from visiting Disneyland for security reasons. His anger was large. He was really upset that he didn't get to go there. He went on a tirade. It made national headlines, international headlines. The whole story kind of broke and it went kind of crazy. What he said was he really wanted to see Mr. Toad. There is something really funny about that that I think just fits into this whole presidential lineage. Everybody loved Disney theme parks.
Now, the next president of the United States is the one exception, the person who never visited a Disney theme park, at least as far as any historical records show. Lyndon Baines Johnson took over as president after Kennedy's assassination. His sensibility was different, and history suggests he didn't have the same sense of wonder that his colleagues did. But with the Vietnam War brewing and a Cold War, who could blame him? That's not to say he didn't have a connection. In 1964, President Johnson named Disney as one of 30 recipients for that year's Presidential Medal of Freedom Award. Recipients of the medal are those who have made outstanding contributions to the security or national interest of the United States, or to world peace, or those who have made significant public or private accomplishments. Now, Walt was not really a big fan of Lyndon Johnson. He respected the office of the president, but he didn't care for the man personally. Unlike some of the other presidents that he was able to show around and show a good time to at his Disneyland, Johnson didn't really show any particular interest in Disney, and likewise, Disney really didn't show any interest in Johnson. Now, Johnson was running for re-election in that year against Republican Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Now, Disney was a prominent supporter of Goldwater and made no secret of the fact that he was supporting Goldwater. Now, Walt was quite the statesman, and he was quite the showman, and he understood that being awarded the Medal of Freedom from the office of the president was a really prestigious thing, and he wasn't going to turn down the opportunity to go to the White House and receive the honor. When introduced, the president said, Artist and impresario, in the course of entertaining an age, he has created an American folklore. The only problem was the timing of it was a little bit suspicious. If you think about the timing, Johnson is up for re-election, and he calls Walt Disney up as a Medal of Freedom recipient, and he knows that uh, Disney is a Goldwater supporter, and yet he wants to have a photo opportunity with Disney right next to him. But Walt Disney, ever the clever showman that he is, put on a pin that said Goldwater in 64 and wore it on the inside of his lapel so that it wasn't obvious to anyone who was looking at him. 
When Walt walked up to the podium to have the ribbon and the medal placed around his neck, he waited for the right moment, turned his body away from the cameras, grinned at Johnson, and flipped over his lapel, revealing the pin. Now, nobody in the room could see it, only Johnson. The story goes on just a little bit to say that Disney himself got a chuckle out of it, and that uh, LBJ wasn't really happy and was really kind of annoyed with Disney for having done that, but got the last laugh anyway because he was re-elected. And the oh, by the way, is when Disney traveled to the White House to receive the honor, he happened to be on the East Coast anyway, so Lillian hadn't gone with him. So Walt was on his own to do this and play this little prank. Normally, Lillian would have probably stopped him from doing that had she been there. She would have seen it and said, Walt, don't do that. And as it turns out, she wasn't really happy when she heard about it later, and he was in the doghouse for a little while. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the graves of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his
Richard M. Nixon is the next president. The really interesting thing about Nixon is that he and Walt Disney were really quite close. They actually spent a lot of time together. Uh, they actually became friends to a large degree. Disney had no greater national booster than Nixon, and it's easy to see why. Nixon being from Southern California and served as both congressman and senator from Southern California, he had a vested interest in Walt Disney, and Walt Disney had a vested interest in him. And he was proud that Walt Disney chose to locate Disneyland right in his backyard. So by the time the park opened in 1955, Nixon was already in his term as vice president. Nixon also had two daughters, just like Disney, and they were around the same ages, so he had an opportunity to get to know each other. Now, Nixon did not go to the park on opening day. He wasn't at Disneyland on opening day in 1955, but he was there shortly after. Within a few days after its opening, he headed over to Disneyland and got a royal welcome from Walt Disney and Fess Parker, who played Davy Crockett. Now, because it was a new park and it was a really kind of interesting place that a lot of dignitaries went, most of them would go, tour the park quickly, make a quick speech, and then head home. And Nixon was different. Nixon actually went to the park, stayed with his daughters, spent the whole day, rode every ride, rode around, and just had a great time. It's kind of one of those amazing things when you think about it that Nixon was that enamored of the park and Walt Disney that he actually took Disneyland and just enjoyed the heck out of it. He was a frequent visitor to Disneyland, being a Southern California guy. He had notable visits in 55, 59, 61, and 68. He toured the park, he rode attractions, he watched shows, he was a guest in every sense. And as I may have mentioned before, his press secretary, Ron Ziegler, had once been a Jungle Cruise skipper. Ziegler and he remained close throughout Nixon's life, and he was a confidant throughout turbulent times. That love of Disney was something they shared, and it's likely that this was a small piece of their connection. In fact, Richard Nixon, more so than any president before him, has a strong connection to the Disney parks. One of Nixon's next visits was in 1959, in June, when Disneyland was going to introduce its new Elwag monorail system. Now, a crowd of reporters were there, and, and Nixon was there to cut the ribbon with uh, giant scissors. But what happened next was kind of funny. So it was really hot, and Walt invited Nixon and his family to go inside and sit inside the air-conditioned monorail. So they went into the pilot's cabin, sat down, and were taking a little bit of uh, cool air in. And after that, Walt realized that the vehicle itself was charged up and ready to go. And because he was kind of a mischievous person himself, Walt hit the forward button and the monorail took off. This delighted the Nixons, who were, who were sitting there and enjoying it. And uh, Walt was reveling in the moment. But the Secret Service was a little bit annoyed about the whole thing. Nobody expected the monorail to leave while the vice president was inside. And his security deal, detail was still on the platform. And uh, so they frantically ran after it, and, but of course couldn't stop it and couldn't catch it. And they watched as Nixon made his way around the 4,200 feet of track. Now, when it finished its loop and came back to the starting point, the Secret Service agents breathed their sigh of relief and then saw Walt smiling at them and waving at them for, through the front window as he went ahead and kept going and took a second trip around. Now, the anxiety kind of subsided. It's, you know, probably more in their minds than anywhere else. But Walt ended his ride and, re and returned the vice president and his family unharmed to the uh, park. Now, kind of the amusing end to this story is that many years later, Walt Disney told the true story of what happened. Now, at that point, the monorail hadn't been fully tested. They were going to run it around a few times during the day to make sure it worked before they let passengers ride. And Walt hadn't been fully trained on how to run the monorail. So had there been an emergency, it might have been a real situation. But there wasn't, and it actually turned out to be kind of funny. A few years after Walt Disney's death, Nixon actually came up with a presidential proclamation honoring Walt Disney and gave him a special gold presidential medal created with Walt on one side and Mickey Mouse on the other. He presented it to the family in March of 1969 in a ceremony at the White House. 
there was always that connection between the two of them. And it was a fitting tribute that Nixon had shown this respect and this love for Walt Disney at, the, at that point in time. Nixon said, It's very hard to describe our feelings about Walt Disney. I say our feelings because my wife and I had the opportunity of knowing him personally. He was just as exciting and interesting personally as he was in all of those wonderful movies. I once asked Walt Disney how I should describe him when we went out and dedicated the monorail at Disneyland. He said that he was an Imagineer, which means that he was an engineer with an imagination. But he was more than that. He was a great artist. He was a perfectionist. He was a wonderful human being. He was the sitting president when Walt Disney World opened in 1971, and the Hall of Presidents was one of the original attractions that premiered along with the resort, and people were quite anxious to queue up and see the robotic Nixon live and in person. Now, of course, there was another infamous visit to the Disney parks. It was 1973. It was the height of the Watergate political scandal, and that's a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C., and an attempted cover-up by the Nixon administration for its involvement at that break-in. President Nixon was cleaning house. He asked for the resignation of his two most influential aides, who were later indicted, convicted, and sent to prison for their involvement. He also fired the White House counsel, who went on to testify against the president. And then, on November 17, 1973, Nixon went to the Contemporary Resort Hotel in Walt Disney World to participate in an hour-long televised question-and-answer session at an Associated Press Managing Editor event with 400 people in attendance. Now, why did he select Disney? Actually, that was at the suggestion of his friend and confidant, Ron Ziegler. They went back to their Disney roots, as it were. They decided to have it somewhere that was familiar and comfortable. Ziegler, having been a Disney lover himself, made sure that that was the right place. So it was there in the ballroom of the Contemporary that he gave the famous I am not a crook speech. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Now, long after he left the presidency, he made two more visits to Disney World. In 1982, he made a trip to experience some of Disney and to get a backstage look at Epcot, which was of great personal interest to him. Now, a permanent World's Fair that included China intrigued the heck out of him. China had basically shut itself off from the West pretty much from the end of World War II until a ping-pong match reopened diplomatic relations. And the so-called ping-pong diplomacy ensued, leading to a state visit from Nixon to China in the early 1970s. And that visit was a notable event. And his visit to Epcot showed us just how far that visit had brought us. Because here he was in the China Pavilion that really opened up China in a different way, only about nine years after he had made that historic visit to China. And then in 1984, he returned to Walt Disney World for the ultimate family trip with his kids and grandkids. He visited both parks and even went to the Hoop-dee-doo Review. What a guy. He really, really, really loved Disney. He understood it. He got it. He was a passionate guest, just like most of us are.
Gerald Ford was the next president of the United States, and he has a unique place in history himself. He is the only president of the United States to never have been elected to the presidency. A strange anomaly in history happened here. He was appointed as VP when Spiro Agnew resigned, and then took the oath of office when Nixon stepped down. So here he was. He was the president of the United States. He was regarded as sort of a clumsy sort of guy, and Chevy Chase famously made fun of him a couple of times that he stumbled. But you have to believe that he was kind of an easy target in that sense. He was a president who stumbled into the presidency in a way. Ford was also a lover of Disney. He had visited Disneyland in 1964 while he was still a Michigan congressman and enjoyed a vacation with his family. He returned again to Disneyland in 1975, this time as president, but again he was sort of a guest and really was just there to enjoy it with his family.
1975, Jimmy Carter was elected next president of the United States in 1976, and he was a native of the Southeast and very popular in Florida. When the International Chamber of Commerce chose to have its convention at the Walt Disney World, this was the first time the event was held outside of the capital city of the host country. Carter was chosen to make the opening remarks. He said, I'm also glad to come to Disney World. I was looking forward to seeing Fantasyland, particularly because it's the source of inspiration for my economic advisors. Laughter ensues. I think perhaps some of you can see the origin of ideas that you get from advisors as well while you're down here. On a more serious note, he goes on to talk about as a, us as a privileged nation and particularly world leaders and corporate leaders' responsibilities in all of it. He added, We've all learned that in an interdependent world, we can only advance when we advance together. Sort of a deep thought, but it fits thematically with the idea for Epcot about nations and corporations working together. The Disney Company, and in particular Card Walker, took advantage of the opportunity to stand in front of this International Chamber of Commerce and do a little talk about Epcot. The timing was right. They had enough of their developed ideas that they could present to this Chamber of Commerce. They followed Jimmy Carter right afterward and gave a presentation about what Epcot is, what it was planned to be, what the thoughts were around this international showcase. It was the perfect opportunity for them to bring all of the ideas forward and be in front of an audience that was the right audience that might have deep pockets. You had representatives from many countries who might see an idea in here and really show an interest in it and might uh, put a little money Disney's way to start pr producing and building the attractions and the, and the pavilions and all the things that they were looking for. And in fact, that did come to pass. This was a seminal event in the evolution of Epcot because a number of people st sat up and said, wow, this is a really good idea. We're on board and wanted to throw some money at the Disney company to build it. In particular, many of the pavilions that you see around the World Showcase Lagoon are a direct result of this presentation that Cardwalker made to this International Chamber of Commerce. And then there's one more little piece to this story that Jimmy Carter stayed to watch Cardwalker talk about Epcot and he was fascinated. And for the next several hours after the conference, he sat with Cardwalker and several of the Imagineers, several of the key designers, to talk about what the idea was for World Showcase. In fact, he stayed for so long that he was actually late for several appointments, and they had to change the president's schedule to accommodate. That's how interesting the whole idea was. And I hope something you're getting out of this podcast is that nearly every president had some very deep interest in Disney, and Epcot is sort of a piece to the puzzle that really fits in and ties everything together because it's this international showcase. And every president has an interest in international diplomacy. And Epcot, to a large degree, represents that very well. Carter returned to uh, Disney World in 1978, this time to enjoy the Magic Kingdom with his family, again as a guest. But perhaps the greatest photo opportunity of a presidency came at Disneyland, and that occurred in 1982, so it was a former president in that case. Jimmy Carter was in town to attend a convention at the Disneyland Hotel, and one morning he got up extra early for a private jogging tour of the park before it opened. There he is in his jogging shorts, right there, just outside of Frontierland. It's a remarkable shot, and it really is totally memorable. It was during Reagan's presidency that country singer Lee Greenwood wrote a song that captured the heart of America. And later, it brought our country together after the tragic events of 9-11. And today, the words remind us of the hero that lives in all of us. I won't forget the man. 
Ronald Reagan is our next president of the United States, and he had a long history with Disney. He had known Walt through his various connections as an actor, and was a fan from the start. The thing is that Ronald Reagan and Walt Disney actually had a lot in common. They both came from the small Midwestern towns, they followed their dreams to California, and made a name for themselves in the entertainment industry. They also socialized with each other on occasion, though Walt was kind of a private man and didn't really socialize too much in Hollywood circles. They also both faced the infamous labor leader and organizer Herb Sorrell in disputes that came up during their careers. Reagan was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, and Walt was the head of the Animators Studio in the early 1940s when Herb came against him. And that led both Reagan and Disney to be called in the fall of 1947 to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. This was sort of a witch hunt of sorts. It was set up in 1938 to uncover citizens with Nazi ties within the United States and kind of evolved over time to look for people who might have some sort of communist leanings. And they both called out Sorrell as leading dissension in the Hollywood labor unions and being led by specifically by communist forces. Now, Reagan was called the great communicator at one point, and when Walt was planning on opening Disneyland, he had hired Art Linkletter to provide the live coverage and talk about the park's opening. But they both realized it was going to be a bigger job than one man could handle. So Linkletter suggested that co-hosts might be helpful in this situation, and so Walt went out and he hired Bob Cummings, the star of the movie Dial M for Murder, and Ronald Reagan to co-host it. So there's Reagan, all involved in Disneyland. It's one of those really neat pieces to history that Reagan was really deeply involved with the opening of Disneyland. And because he was a personal friend of Walt's, it just made it that much more compelling. And Ron, you, your first job is down here in the town square. Uh, well, uh, right out here in front of the depot, yes, for the main street and the parade and so forth. We have lots to do. Get busy. Okay. So long, Ron. Thanks for coming out. We were all aware that something had been going on here, some great construction activity, and... Uh, Yes, I jumped at it. And this is Frontierland. Inside this stockade, Walt Disney has created a frontier village that could have been carved out of the wilderness a hundred years ago by the pioneers themselves. The flag flying over the stockade has 13 stars commemorating America's first period of independence. Ron provided a smoothness and a kind of an erudition, which was very good. In those days, you know, there used to be a joke about him around Hollywood. They said, if you ask him what time it is, he'll tell you how to make a watch. But during that live telecast, Reagan had the fewest blunders. It was the other two hosts and Walt Disney himself who made some of TV's very first bloopers. 
we were designated as to our spots and where we were to carry out our uh, chores of, of explaining things. But every once and then you would move. You'd go from one place to another. You know, little did we know at the time. And then suddenly here's this guy on the show that's governor of California. The next thing you know, he's president. He did terrific. I'm still sitting in a warm glow of what I saw here. One other tie here is that Reagan and Disney continued their relationship at more, you know, sort of a loose friendship until Walt's death in 1966. And as governor of California at that point, it's actually Reagan who petitioned the uh, U.S. Postmaster General to create a stamp with Walt Disney's likeness on it. Ronald Reagan really wanted to be at the opening of Epcot in October of 1982, but his schedule wouldn't allow it. So... They decided to have a second grand opening with the president. So on March 8, 1983, President Reagan paid a visit to Epcot, escorted by Dick Nunes, president of Walt Disney World, and several hundred math and science students from Central Florida. They went on, saw the American adventure, and then Reagan gave a speech at the site of what's now the America Gardens Theater, talking about the future, the promise of Epcot, the greatness of having students come over from other countries and experience America while sharing stories of their own countries. He talked about the speed of computers and how technology was advancing into the 21st century. It was really a great day for Ronald Reagan because he was a part of that history in Epcot and was really a, a focal point of it. Being so close to Walt Disney earlier on, he really got a, a way to get into it and get engaged and be a part of the Epcot Center that Walt had envisioned all along. Well, as we know, mostly envisioned all along. And in 1984, he held his second inauguration at Epcot. Why? because it was really, really cold in D.C., the coldest inauguration on record. And given Reagan's general health, look, he'd survived the assassination attempt a few years before, and the U.S. had already lost a president to pneumonia on his inauguration day. That would have been William Henry Harrison in the 1840s, and they didn't want to have a repeat of that. So rather than go through it and have a very cold event and have a lengthy thing that might have gotten people sick, including Reagan, they decided to cancel it. And in step Michael Eisner to suggest that they have the inauguration event at Disney World instead. With Marine One landing behind the American Adventure, Reagan's motorcade came along the promenade. He then stood on a platform with the American Adventure pavilion behind him, and the parade went around the lagoon. Well, indeed, it is an honor for me to be here today to receive a magnificent gift that I received and a second and very much warmer inauguration day. I understand that in preparing for this event, more than 2,500 young people worked with sponsors in the private sector who donated food, transportation, and lodging. And each of you who helped to make this private sector initiative possible has my heartfelt thanks. In this setting, one story of a private initiative is particularly appropriate. Back in Missouri, in the early 1900s, there lived a farm boy who discovered that he had a knack for drawing barnyard animals. As an adult, he began to put his animals into cartoons, and he became convinced that he could entertain people by telling stories about a little creature with a high voice, red trousers and yellow shoes and white gloves. Professionals in the field made fun of the idea, and to produce his first cartoons, the young man had to sell or pawn virtually everything he owned. But today, 57 years later, this man and his creation have become permanently fixed in the history of our popular culture. His name was Walt Disney. His little creature was Mickey Mouse. 
Let the parade begin. Ladies and gentlemen, Walt Disney World is proud to present from across the nation the finest bands in the land in the President's Inaugural Bands Parade. supposed to be in the Washington inaugural and this has a lot of sentimental value for Disney World because this calliope was bought by Walt Disney to open Disneyland in California. Think about his inauguration event at Epcot. You can essentially walk in the steps of a former president, just walk around the path in front of the American Adventure and you are on the inauguration parade route. It's kind of cool when you think about it that they actually had it there at Disney World. After his presidency, he returned again to Disneyland in 1990. It was part celebration kickoff of the 35th anniversary and to honor him for his contributions. He appeared with Michael Eisner on a ride down Main Street. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general
Following Reagan was George H.W. Bush, or Bush Sr. One of the things he had was his Points of Light program. Points of Light is an international, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization headquartered in the United States dedicated to engaging more people and resources in solving serious social problems through voluntary service. Since it was started, it's had regular ceremonies to recognize those who have achieved greatness through their actions. And remarkably, the program continues today, almost 30 years later. During the early part of the program, he also awarded cities that contributed to social good as a point of light. Orlando was the first city to be a point, mostly because of Disney, though not entirely. President Bush named a daily point of light a citizen who showed great compassion towards their fellow Americans and gave of themselves to help without asking for anything in return. When it came time to have a ceremony honoring these points of light, President Bush called Michael Eisner. A date was set in Epcot Center to host the ceremony, and arrangements were made to bring in as many of the honorees to Disney World as they could. So on September 30, 1991, President Bush and Mrs. Bush arrived at Epcot Center. He awarded the first 575 people with a point of light honor. The president spoke in the American Gardens and, like Reagan before him, took great care to link Walt Disney to this special day. A Walt Disney once said, The greatest moments in life are not concerned with selfish achievements, but rather with the things we do for the people. And he was absolutely right. And that creed brings us together in this extraordinary place, sharing this extraordinary day. And don't forget that this was the 20th anniversary of Walt Disney World opening, of the Magic Kingdom opening, so it really did have a special meaning in that sense.
Bill Clinton is up next, and he was really a man of the people. He and his wife and daughter made some trips to Disney World long before he was president. There are great shots of them that are online of them in the 70s wearing Disney clothing. It's awesome. So he was no stranger to the Disney parks either. Later in 1996, he visited the Disney Institute. Now, the Disney Institute's interesting. It can be traced back to June of 73 when Disney announced plans for a master-planned residential community of Lake Buena Vista. The Institute buildings included 28 program studios, 225-seat performance center, and a 1,150-seat outdoor amphitheater. And it had a full-service spa. Guests got to choose and to participate in an array of over 80 programs in different categories. He went and stayed there with his family. Now, there are no public records of what he did or where he went, but we assume that he was there to enjoy Disney with his family. They probably hired a guest relations person to take them around and be able to go on and off attractions, and so very few guests actually saw them in the park. But it's, it is kind of cool that during his presidency, he took some time to go to a Disney theme park and enjoy himself. So clearly, he was a guest as well. And, of course, Bill's other connection is that he is the first president to lend his voice to the Hall of Presidents.
George W. Bush made speeches twice at Disney, at the Grand Floridian Resort and Spa in 2003 and Disney's Contemporary Resort in 2006. And then after 9-11, he had an awkward statement that went like this. When they struck, they wanted to create an atmosphere of fear. And one of the great goals of this nation's war is to restore public confidence in the airline industry, is to tell the traveling public, get on board, do your business around the country, fly and enjoy America's great uh, destination spots, get down to Disney World in Florida, take your families and enjoy life the way we want it to be enjoyed. Host John King of CNN came on the air that night and said, Joining us now is Paul Pressler. He's the chairman of Walt Disney Parks and Resorts Worldwide. It was a nice plug from the president there to go to Florida. Pressler responded, Well, certainly in the days immediately following the tragedy, we saw a significant decline in our attendance. But in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a steady, positive momentum moving forward as consumer confidence is building. The interview went back and forth a little bit, with Pressler finally adding, well, it's always hard to predict the future, but based on the results of the last couple of weeks, we definitely see positive momentum moving forward. But if this trend continues, I think that the industry and the American public will get back to travel and to their vacation plans. And John King added, all right, and a personal plug from the President of the United States can't hurt. In 2004... W. Bush pardoned a turkey, and that turkey was flown to California where he was in the Disneyland Thanksgiving Day Parade and then was able to live out its natural life at Disneyland. How about that as a story? And of course, you can hear W. in his own voice welcome you to the Hall of Presidents in a previous incarnation. President Barack Obama wisely said, the genius of America, a faith in the simple dreams of its people and insistence on small miracles.
And that leads us around to our current commander-in-chief, the guy who's going to soon be the former president. Barack Obama was on Main Street in Disney World in 2012, talking about jobs in the economy. Hello, everybody. I am glad to be at Disney World. The Magic Kingdom. This is outstanding. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. It, it is great uh, to be here. It is rare that I get to do something that Sasha and Malia envy me for. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, maybe for once they'll actually ask me at, at dinner how my day went. Uh, and I confess I am excited to see Mickey. Uh, it's always uh, nice to meet a world leader uh, who has bigger ears than me. My understanding is that he and the family have visited Disneyland and Disney World in the past before he became president. And if I were going to guess, he'll go again after his presidency. And until they update the show the next time, you can still hear him giving his Hall of Presidents speech, taking the oath of office, by visiting the Hall of Presidents in Disney World. So there you have it. Those are the presidents and their connection to Disney parks. Will the next one have a similar connection? Will they lend their voice to the Hall of Presidents? We can't say for sure. But if history is any indicator, they probably will. Now remember, when it comes time for the general election in November, get out there and vote. Doesn't matter who you vote for, just make sure your voice is heard. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. And just one last request before I let you go. If you can, Please support this podcast in any way you like. I have three ways of supporting me. Number one is the easiest, and it's free. Just head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast and give me a quick review. Tell other people how great you think this podcast is, and it'll help grow the podcast. The second way is to go ahead and purchase one of the apps I have for sale over at DisneyPodcast.net or DisneyWorldPodcast.net. I create apps for iOS devices, so for Apple devices, your iPhones and your iPads, and I've got a couple that are Disney-related that you might enjoy, so take a look at those and see if any one of them might be interesting to you. And the third way is, I've recently set up a Patreon account, it's patreon.com slash Disneyview, and if you like, just make a quick financial contribution. I'm happy to continue doing this regardless, but if you like the show and you'd like to contribute in some way... I'm always happy to take a small contribution. I'm not, there's no requirement, I'm not asking for much, but if you do give me a contribution, I'm happy to give you a shout-out on this podcast in the future. Hey, thanks very much, and I hope you enjoy my podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. 
Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.